BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to part two of episode 300 now, Fred Armisen is someone that first came on the show way back on episode 45. I went to the set of Portlandia and we hung out and he very graciously gave up his lunchtime to sit there with me and have a conversation. Uh, I was very much enjoying the legal cannabis in Portland that day and was overwhelmed by being on set. And I never really felt like I had had the conversation that I wanted to have with Fred about punk music and Fred, someone that has been very supportive of the show over the years and someone that I have a, you know, a fairly uh, robust text conversation with about punk rock minutia that comes up on the show. So, so here it is on episode 300, a chance to make things right, sit back, relax, and enjoy the returning Fred Armisen on turned out a punk. Fred, thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Hi. Well, I, I apologize for that first episode. You're one of the first batch of people I interviewed. And listening back to it, I, 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 uh, <laughs> it was a ball of energy back then. So uh, thank you for uh, being willing to come back for a, another stab at this thing. Anything for you. Well, I appreciate that. And I guess like one of the things that really jumped out at me while listening to that episode and kind of since... Uh, I, I, you know, listen, I did that episode with you is actually like your involvement in New York hardcore. Like I had no idea going into that about KGB since then I've acquired the seven inch and I'm a little more immersed in that uh, and things like that. But I just wanted to kind of get, what was your first exposure to that particular kind of sound of stuff, New York hardcore? I had a friend named Kenny, Kenny mm -hmm. Young, mm -hmm. who I was in the KGB with and it was completely him who because he used to go into the city more we lived on long island he would get records and bring them back to long island and he was just more uh of um a curious like new york city traveler like he would go into the to manhattan all the time i would go once in a while with him mm -hmm. but he really like and this is more symbolic too is like i would take the long island railroad in and he always just took a bus and a couple subways. Like, that's just the way he was. He did, did graffiti. So he really, really knew that world. And he knew um, that, um, he, he, of course, he knew about all the um, uh, uh, matinees, you know, at CBGB's. But he also knew a bunch of other shows that I wasn't as familiar with. Um, like at, 
or some of the names was it a1 or 1a a7 yeah a7 um so he was like always going there to see shows so he really really knew it and like shopped around and stuff so the thing you know we would he would get maximum rock and roll and then we'd sort of he'd just show me all the bands and stuff but all of the um compilations that we think are so like I don't know, quaint now. He, at the time, they were like revolutionary. Mm -hmm. So I think Flex Your Head might've been one of them, but um, uh, Let Them Eat Jelly Beans. Like now, you know, I I don't know. It's like, he just really, really got into it. And as far as the actual bands go, I feel like Murphy's Law was like the biggest one. That, like, that we do. There were some bands on Long Island, like the Nihilistics, who we just never got a chance to see. Or maybe he saw them, but I never got a chance to see them. They also claim to have beat up the Beastie Boys, right? Like, I think it's in the New York... Har- no, it's in, like, the, uh, the... Yeah, the History of New York Hardcore book that came out a couple of years ago. They tell a story about the Beastie Boys being dropped off by their parents at a show and uh, them beating them up. And that's that's a, that's their claim. Who? What, what the Nihilistics. Yeah. I, I never got to see them, and I um you know unfortunately but murphy's law obviously and um i think kenny was really into agnostic front who i got into later but like not i just didn't know as many bands as he did so my experience is is that i loved being like adjacent to it but i wasn't as familiar as kenny was or as i I like to think i was you know he just went to so many shows. It's the scene that like also that it seems like KGB was a part of is a scene that I was completely unaware of that, you know, through a bunch of reissues in the last few years has become kind of, you know, more of a spotlight has been put on it. And that's almost like this New York hardcore thing that was really informed by, by discharge. And I guess like a lot of the UK kind of crossover stuff that was happening and, you know, specifically bands like sacrilege and Hellbent. um, and, and ultimately, KGB kind of sounds like that, too. And, and Vic Venom, who played in Sacrilege, uh, also played in KGB, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and then Vic Venom went on to play with, like, uh, Nausea and a, a bunch of other bands. And uh, he was also, like, if, if, you know, if Kenny was the real deal, I feel like Vic Venom was even more the real deal. Like, he mm-hmm. lived it. And... When he, I mean, I remember he left New York and he just went on tour. Like he just left uh, to just go be, you know, part of like whatever hardcore scene was happening, like all all around the country. <laughs> um, but as far as like British bands, I remember Kenny loved. I, sorry, they keep mentioning it, but I that was that was my go to for like yeah. who is who. But Discharge he loved, and then we opened for GBH, and GBH was like. Uh, weirdly like the sort of like for, for us they seemed like the um like an ideal way to have a band like that was just what we looked up to as a, a type of band to be like other graphics and stuff and um like anti-nora league uh were anti-nora league were practically a pop band to us because they were so <laughs> their music was so accessible yeah you know like yeah. it was not uh, it was just so accessible and so f- in the way listener friendly that I, I really loved anti Nora League a lot. Oh yeah, definitely. And, and these bands were like chart bands in the UK. Yeah, that, that, by then I feel like it was so accepted, but 
to us on Long Island, it was all so new. Mm -hmm. And also like, um, we still kind of lumped it all together, like Discharge and um, GBH and whoever, like we still were also still discovering The Clash and Bow Wow Wow. It, for us, we didn't separate that stuff as much. Or for me, for me, I didn't separate that stuff as much. Yeah, and like, you know, I think that another thing that's really, um, you know, I've really learned from doing this show is how interconnected it all was in the very beginning and how you had, you know, members of the Smiths, members of the cult and members of um, uh, Slaughter and the Dogs all hanging out together. Like that was just, you know, the scene at one point before, as you're saying, before it got codified and kind of broken into, oh, it's this thing over this thing or it's it's this hybrid versus this hybrid. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, that, that was definitely the case. Um, I think also like, we also weren't, I wasn't able to um, separate the idea of what the original punks looked like to, and to the new ones, new ones being like GBH and all those bands. Like, you know, their hair was like a little spikier and like there were some more like studs on people's jackets and stuff. Like there was a little bit more of a uniform, but I really followed that uniform. Like I was like, no, this is the way it's supposed to look. So I was very like, I really was into the look of it without thinking that like punk rock can look like many different things. I was like, no, no, punk rock is supposed to look like this. Uh, it's funny. Cause like you wind up in such disparate, versions of punk rock you know over the time and obviously this is like over a, a many year span but like the scenes that you're part of with Trenchmouth, and obviously the chicago scene must have been radically different from the discord scene that you guys were kind of part of in dc for a moment like it just seems like that is so different than new york and oh like, yes <laughs> the yeah. stuff you were coming out of oh yeah and i kind of like it, it was a little bit more work like um the whatever I'll say that I'll call it for now the New York look the the New York hardcore look that I what, 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 how I perceived it was a little bit of work like there's stuff that you had to get where I feel like in Chicago they and this is years later it was way more industrial and pared down I don't mean like industrial music I mean like you know uh like Dickie's black pants Dickie's shirt yeah utilitarian um, kind of vibe yeah, like work Sears, work shoes, that, that whole <laughs> yeah. look yeah. was very easy. That was really easy. And you didn't even have to um, define yourself. You were just sort of like, this is it. This is, you know, I don't know. There was something about it that was like uh, just easier to try to uh, put together. I, I recently saw the um, the Detroit hard, uh, History of Hardcore documentary that's coming out. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing when you think about touch and go, obviously like that being such a fixture of Chicago at that time, also kind of coming out of the super gnarly young hardcore scene. Like it's amazing how many people, you know, spawn out of these, this sort of first wave of, of just like gnarly hardcore bands. You mean like a Corey's uh, first band? Yeah. Well, Corey's getting yeah, the Necros and like, yeah, just that whole Detroit kind of, kind of scene with negative approach and, and bored youth and, and the fix yeah. and all those bands. Like, you know, once again, it's like, I don't think quite as gnarly as it was in New York from the sounds of it, but like at the same time, it was this sort of like really scrappy hardcore scene. And yet, you know, years later, it's, it's a sort of fixture of this sophisticated adult music in Chicago. Yeah. I wonder how much of that, like, 
was also a matter of time. Like, even though I moved west, you know, from New York, I also feel like some of it is chronological, like somewhere punk started to become that. And, and also I remember hardcore sort of the, the tempo, the faster tempo just sort of disappearing. I heard less and less of it. Maybe that's just me, but I remember all of a sudden just tempo is slowing down somewhere in there and wh whenever that was like in the eighties somewhere. Um, yeah. Like uh, Lou, Lou kind of spells it out and give me indie rock, right. Where it's uh, started smoking pot, like the music a little bit slower, like everyone around 84, it just feels like not necessarily always smoking pot, but the uh, eight, you know, 84, 85 is kind of like this real turning yeah. point in hardcore. Yeah. I'm, I'm also thinking that like, I can't remember what year Kraut was um, their, their Adjustment to Society album, but Kraut were like weird, they were pretty big. They were like a big band, but I almost don't consider them hardcore in the same way in that their tempos were pretty slow. Like they had pretty straight ahead tempos that were like pretty much like fast punk rock, but not that super speed, you know? Yeah, and they're super melodic too. I love, I love those Kraut yeah. records. Kraut was really great. And um, I, got to, I got to see them. There was also like a movement and I, I've never seen it called this anywhere else, but like I started to see the sort of dreadlock punks and it was like, we called them peace punks. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I've never heard them called that anywhere else, but it was very like Lower East Side and uh but I, but the look and the like what they were about i've seen all over the place but only in new york where they called peace punks was that kind of like the squatter squatter rot squat scene yeah like that you know it was it was almost kind of like less black and white and more colorful like a little bit and i liked it uh did you ever you, you're obviously friends with steve jones i think you guys have done stuff together right over the years yeah have you, ever oh, talked yeah. to him about, have you ever talked about doing those Kraut records? Not just that. That's the first time I ever met Steve Jones was when he played with Kraut. Really? So, <laughs> oh yeah. Kraut opened for the Psychedelic Furs at Nassau Community College. What a show. What a show. And um, Paul Cook had just gotten into a car accident. So I went to the show, went to the crowd show. I don't know how I made my way backstage. But first thing is, I think the singer was talking about he was going to college. And I was like, I, I don't know what I said. I must have said something like, wow, that's so cool that you're in a band, but you also want to go to college. And he said something, not in an, a mean way, but he was just like, yeah, what do you think? I'm a fucking idiot. Um, uh, so he was sort of pointing out that like, you know, I'm a smart person and uh, I really liked that. I liked that as a lesson. I'm like, yeah, well, of course, that makes total sense. But then I saw Steve and he had some sort of like scotch tape hanging down from his hair or something like, and he was a little drunk. And um, I told him, I was like, I'm really sorry about Paul. And he was like, yeah, I was fucking some bird. And I thought, that Steve was just making a joke and just trying to be like a classic punk. But when I've talked to Steve later about it, he was like, no, that was a true story. I was actually with a woman when Paul had his accident. So 
he was Man. telling the truth. Yeah. That's wild. It's also wild that, you know, all these years later, you're still like running into this guy in completely different parts of your life, like completely different, you know. Oh, yeah. And that like, it was a big deal for me to meet him back then. And it's mm-hmm. a big deal for me that I'm his friend now. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to like, tell him that without freaking him out too much you know <laughs> but i've said stuff like you know like you know you were a poster on my wall i had the sex pistols poster on my wall but um you know he's just like i gotta say i gotta tell you i just i almost want to write about this like he is um a, a a magnificent fascinating person steve jones he's just like this really like he's very like sensitive and he's like still like you know continuing to like be a a good person like he he's got all these years of sobriety but also like he's just like there's something about him that's just like heroic and he's he's this california you know he lives in california and is not interested in going to england he's got the thickest accent i've ever heard not interested in going back to england (laughs) <laughs> like he's comfortable here this is where he wants to be it, he's um i really really love that guy he's really a special special person and funny and like just the way he talks i i, I you know it's like i, I just want to hear him talking all the time yeah and i think i think he's super underrated too as in terms of being a guitar player like the stuff he did obviously you know and, and never mind the bollocks but also those professional records are fucking awesome yeah he's he really like that tone that guitar tone is not to be taken for granted like mm-hmm. i think people think it's just like a distortion box or I, I there is like there's a tone he gets from the guitar that is so full and it's not just distortion it's a full you hear the whole guitar it's so so good yeah no there's there's like you know i've always felt like the the clash are obviously an incredible band but like the clash would be the clash in in the 70s or in the 60s you know like you could you could play the clash on classic rock radio but the sex pistols are something that still doesn't feel comfortable on classic rock radio like it still feels yeah. electric yeah and i think he played bass on a lot of those songs he was telling me yeah that's what i've on, heard on bollocks but um can you believe how so young he was yeah <laughs> Like he was like so young. I'm, I was always very like jealous about that, about bands in general uh, from England, like how like they all started so young. Yeah, I, I actually was, as I was watching that Detroit documentary the other day, thinking like, is it weird that I'm obsessed with the culture and lives of teenagers from the <laughs> 80s? <laughs> like here I am an adult with my own children and I'm looking at videos of like 15 year old kids playing hardcore music and, and just like yeah. loving it. You know, there's something, yeah. something I go through the same thing. Also that there's from so far away, like I'll yeah. see pictures of, of mods in wherever, you know, in Brighton. And I'm just like looking through these pictures, fascinated, like what were their lives? But this, they're so far away. Why am I, you know, why is it of interest? Yeah, I don't know. It's something about, I I think the margins uh, are always the most interesting, right? And I think I'm stealing that. It's a quote from um, from a, a book, actually. I think, but but I think like the the stuff in the margins is always the most interesting. The people that are drawn to subculture, especially yeah. 
at a time when you had to search it out, you know, like now it's different, obviously, but like back then, like, how would you become a mod? Like, was it gifted to you by an older relative or was it a kid I at know. School? You know what the weird, um, the weird, uh, I'll call it uh, the sort of like Pony Express was were for New Yorkers anyway, it was shops, like little mm-hmm. stores where more than magazines, I think, where you'd see a pin and the pin kind of informed what something was. So if I went to like Bleaker Bob's or something, it was like a pin of the two-tone guy that I'd be like, okay, that's what ska looks like. And then another <laughs> yeah. pin of like the selector, you know, logo. Oh, okay, that's, that's what, this is what ska is. It's, it's, it's the stuff in the, um, the glass of, of all the pins and like posters and stuff where you start kind of figuring out what things mean. Mm-hmm. And For it was, me. No, I, I totally agree. And it's amazing how back then, how important it was that the, the sign and the signifier were, were, were like very much tied together. You know, you see people, you know, like, you know, famous people, athletes wearing band t-shirts and it has nothing necessarily to do with the, the, the music of the band. But that back then it had to, because it was so important to know what you were getting by, by the packaging. Oh, totally. And also the whole, there's a money thing with that too, where like, I don't remember having the luxury of just wearing whatever t-shirt. I was like, okay, yeah, this is $7 and it better be a band that I love. And it better be like the design that I love or however much it was $10 or something. But like these shirts weren't like floating around enough to just throw whatever on. I just, it just wasn't around. Like I had to buy it. It, it, well, it's funny. I did this. I had a conversation the other day with a, a friend of mine, and we're talking about how, as time goes on and things get more codified, it almost becomes like sex of Christianity, where, you know, you're like a touch and go person versus a Discord person versus an alternative tentacles person versus a, a lookout person, and you know, and like, and there's all these types of records that are a specific type of punk, and you wear the specific type of shirts, and yeah. it's like these little these little sex within punk rock that you were uh, a devotee to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I always like looking back, I'll always feel, you know, like I, like I missed out on the whole LA scene. I just missed it. I just missed out on, I wasn't there. So a lot of scenes like that, that had a look that I just, you know, it was too far away. And the money too, like you're saying, like it, it's, it, it was an investment to, to like pick oh up a God. different style, pick up different records. Yeah. I remember, yeah, it's just like you had to budget out, okay, what am I going to buy? What, what can I buy? What should I buy? So you couldn't, I didn't even have the luxury of sort of buying something just for the hell of it. You know, like, oh, I just, I guess I'll pick one of these up too. It was very measured. Yeah, no, it had to be. It definitely yeah. had to be. How did you kind of like, you know, like what was the, the band that kind of bridged you to more sort of the stuff that you'd be doing in Trenchmouth, like the stuff that was more kind of on the, the post-punk leaning sound of stuff like you i guess you'd always been a gang of four and, and bands like that yeah but. but some something any anything with timbali so like pig bag and like um bow wow wow were the sort of like that drumming there was even a song by xdc called living through another cuba god although was i in touch with that song back then um but that beat living through another cuba is like where that's somewhere in there is where all of that lived mm-hmm. um 
so somewhere in there, it was like somewhere with all those bands, that's kind of where, where I was headed. And then with Trenchmouth, let me think, let me think, let me think. By then, I think um, Firehose's drumming, the Minutemen drumming, you know, George Hurley was kind of like in there. Um, I can't remember what else, but somewhere in there was like, this is kind of what, what I want this kind of drumming to sound like. That's where the bridges were. And like you're saying, there's a transition point also ha- kind of happening in punk in general. Like this is the emergence of, of, of post-hardcore, right? Like the stuff that was coming after that first wave. Yeah, like um, Big Boys. Damon mm-hmm. from Trenchmouth was like sort of introducing me to them. So um, all of that kind of stuff. And, and then later, of course, like Fugazi, which, you know, I, I know that they changed how every, like or how many bands played, but you know, clearly that was like a, a turning point for a lot of bands and for us, you know. Were you were you in DC when that happened? With Fugazi, when Fugazi started playing out? In New York. So oh, Damon yeah. took me to go see them. So I went to school, School of Visual Arts with Damon, mm-hmm. uh, the singer of Trench Mouth. That's where I met him. So the, um, this is 80, oh man, it's not quite 88. Maybe it's 87, 88. But he took me to go see them in um, in Hoboken at Maxwell's. What were the bands that were kind of like, I guess, you know, were you into kind of in between like the end of KGB and, and kind of the start of Trenchmouth? Like, were there were there stuff happening in well, New York? Well, Meat Puppets. I would say yeah. Meat Puppets were huge to me. Who's Could Do was huge to me. Mm-hmm. Um, those were the, like the definitely the bigger ones. Um Firehose, I just missed, you know, I missed the like when Minutemen were like touring. I missed it. I just, for me, it was it just like I had to go backwards to the Minutemen. Um, but who's could do Bad Brains, of course. Um, were you kind of aware of all that, like, you know, the swans and, and I guess like the pussy galore and, and early Sonic Youth, like the stuff that I guess would be labeled at the time pig fuck music for um, some horrible swans, reason? Swans, yes. Um, but for some reason, um, the other, those other bands, no. Yeah. Unfortunately. So any like no wave stuff, I just, I just didn't know. It's really interesting about New York is that it's, it is, you know, like, I guess, cause it's so big and, and there's so many people there that every scene does seem a lot more factioned off, you know, than, than other places. Like, you know, these scenes don't seem to intermingle in the same way that they do in, in say a city like Detroit, you know, where there's just less people. Yeah. And the, and for me, like the added thing, which is like, <clears throat> it's almost not something I can't really well, I'm too old to be like not proud of this kind of thing, but I'm also like a Long Island guy. So yeah, like yeah. for a long time, I'm like, I'm a New York guy. What? Then I'm like, wait a minute. I'm a suburban guy. Like I went to the city, you know, I lived there a little bit, but I kind of went back to Long Island. So like m- my record collection kind of, I think, reflected that. I think with um, Fishbone and stuff like that, I'm just, I, we were like, there's something also a little like sort of um, pretty about the music that I listened to back then. Well, like, were you into like Galaxy 500 and were they starting to go before I you left them. New York? No, I missed them completely. 
Well, it's amazing how like, yeah, like you're, well, I guess like, it's like being a hardcore kid. And then, you know, the trench mouth stuff seems like very much part of that discord. I guess skiing is kind of a separate thing, but like. Yeah, no, no. We were heavily influenced. We were like very heavily informed by discord. And then to the credit of the other band members, God, it is such a cliche thing to say, but they really were into dub. They really were into like King Tubby and Lee Scratch Perry and it was all brand new to me but they really yeah they really were into it they were into all that stuff and barry adamson and all kinds of stuff you know um so luckily they they just introduced me to all of that it was also an amazing time for that stuff getting reissued on on cd and a lot of that stuff that was like you know previously kind of inaccessible or or only accessible if you like really dug for it like we're, we're kind of coming back around for the first time in in the early 90s yeah um you know it's it's funny you just like you're going into a part of my brain that i'm really glad that i haven't like sorted this out on paper beforehand but i really am searching through my brain going like oh yeah that's right early 90s (laughs) i think because i think as time goes i'm i mix it all up together Mm -hmm. and so i'm just i'm making sure not to say anything that i have any assumptions about you know what I mean? So yeah, like, uh, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I really loved big boys, but let me make sure that it's, it is accurate to when I really, you know, the first <laughs> time I heard them, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, but they really meant a lot to me and me puppets. I, I kind of can't stress enough how much they, they meant to me as well as a sort of opening of like punk rock does not have to sound like you think it has to sound. Mm-hmm. Cause they, to me, are very much like a what I, I actually consider them part of the hardcore scene and I'm like hardcore can be the me puppets oh definitely yeah like that's the uh that's the best thing about that SST scene when you look at those that first wave of bands where you got like them uh the Minutemen uh the Descendants uh you know um ultimately Husker Du and Saccharin Trust and Black Flag and they're all like doing this thing but it's it's like a completely different take on it and and just so out there like all those bands still sound really fucking out there today they really do and thank god for that and they must have yeah. been in some remote towns because it's just so odd sounding still the choices that they made i'm kind of obsessed with the arizona and like the stuff that came in i out know it. why so weird like well, I, why there i mean i guess it makes sense that they're so isolated but like what a scene what a incredible like they really had a very alien view of it all yeah yeah like it really you know like there's 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 just like yeah like a real dark take on punk rock like all that placebo record stuff yeah really Um, interesting colorado's like that too like the colorado uh, the denver scene um, and I like I, I interviewed um, someone from there and he was talking about how that's like a capital for cults. There's like a lot of like religious cults out there and a lot of like doomsday kind of cults out there. And then like there's these bands out there like this band you your funeral kind of a goth band and the lead singer winds up doing movies with Joe Coleman and becomes like a, a, a dealer of serial killer artifacts and art like she becomes the agent for um, John Wayne Gacy as a painter no this i do not know about 
I will send you the news clipping about this woman, but it is it is fascinating. Like, and it's like it, that's not the only band from Colorado that has some weird ass story attached to it. It feels like. Wow, Colorado. I you know I feel like I don't know enough about the Colorado scene, except for like, Jello Biafra. I guess was originally from there or something. Yep. But yeah, um, and, yeah. And, and do you remember the Fluid? Oh yeah, <laughs> they were they were from there. They they were called uh, Bumcon originally, and they were like uh, no no were they yeah i think they were bum connor no the uh frantics my dad's a fucking alcoholic was their song but uh yeah were they like the fluid i remember a bunch of my friends liking i can't remember exactly but weren't they like a little slower or Mm -hmm. am i wrong yeah no they definitely were like they they sound kind of more grunge than any of the seattle bands like okay that is my first um that's the first time i heard about music that was like that was the fluid that was the one that everyone was like this is like slower and more intense or something yeah they kind of happened i think just before all the sub pop stuff started really exploding like obviously they end up being on sub pop but their their first record kind of just before that wave and seems to have kind of like gotten a lot of buzz around that time you know just yeah. you know and it, it almost feels like the seattle stuff came out and kind of stole all that thunder yeah that the seems to that seems to always happen that there's like that first catalyst hey i've got a question for you yeah because now you've got my brain going there's a band we really got into in trench mouth but they were a dc band but not a discord band okay. um they were called and this is they were be- before us, but we really got into them. They were called Nine Three Five Three. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, they were really, really great. And I think they ended up on a label like a DC label called Adult Swim later, like in the nineties. But like, just a fantastic band. They there's like this whole kind of DC scene that I, I don't really uh, know that much about, but apparently it was like kind of a heavier drug scene. Um, ah. and it crosses over with bands like the obsessed and like I had Bubba Dupree from uh, void on the podcast not too long ago. And he talked about how there was like after void, he was doing this band with the guy from the obsessed and they would play with nine, three, five, three. And it's like, it feels like there was like this sort of like, uh, you know, kind of uh, darker, um, and kind of like after the first wave of, of DC stuff, but like darker yeah. DC scene. I, that sounds right. Because they weren't quite in that scene, but they're still from there. Yeah. God, God, I love them. They were really, really fantastic. Well, you know, you know what's wild? Like, you know who is a DC band is Royal Trucks. No. Yeah, they actually met in DC because because Pussy Galore started in DC, and they have like even on their first seven, it says "fuck Ian" on the back or something. Um, so why am I thinking of them as New York? Because they all moved to New York eventually. They're all like fuck this and then <gasps> pulled up stakes wow. and made the no opposite idea. move no idea it's funny because when she was on the show she was talking like yeah like i used to go to you know i would go to to minor threat shows like that was my shit and she said that actually royal trucks the reason they had all that feedback and all that noise is because she wanted to make it like discharge where you had to struggle to hear the song through all the through all the noise up front oh wow yeah it makes that band even cooler like they're the coolest yeah. band ever <laughs> yeah i had no idea 
I think Trenchmouth might have played a show with them. Oh, that'd be a weird <laughs> show. Yeah, it was somewhere that, but it was, I think it was part of like something where there was like a bunch of bands playing. So it's not like we were anywhere close to playing with them, but I mm-hmm. think there was, we had some kind of crossing of paths at some show in the Midwest. I can't remember where. You know, we talked about this last time, how like Trenchmouth was definitely ahead of its time. And I think we even talked about at the drive-in and now I think I th- said, if you guys have been around at the same time as at the drive-in. And then it's funny because like Cedric from at the drive-in was on the show and talked about what an influence seeing you guys was on him and Omar um, when you guys played San Antonio at some point. Yeah. Damon told me that uh, they said that, and that, that makes me very happy. What a, what a nice thing. That's yeah. so cool. Well, it's, it's awesome because like it, it definitely, you know, it felt like, you know, and I'm looking from a distance, obviously geographically and historically, but it feels like Trenchmouth never really got, it's due while you guys were around and there's almost like through influence it's like vindication on some level i would hope oh yeah that that um always brings me happiness you know to think that like anyone was influenced in any way that's always really really nice and then like you know like i have a way of like painting the picture of what it was like to be in trench mouth and it's very convenient to say like oh, we didn't get our due and we, you know, played so many empty places. But like, I have to remind myself that like, we played some also crowded places and some, we did well in in a lot of cities. So I have to remind myself not to beat myself up too much about how we did because there were some shows that were, you know, huge and and really, um, you know, for us, a, a phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird when you think, you know, Keith Morris was on the show uh, a couple of weeks back and was talking about how like I was talking about that legendary circle jerks tour and how crazy that tour was like all, every show must have been wild and the birth of every scene. He's like, yeah, most shows were like 30 people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Oh really? He's like, yeah, oh, no yeah. one cared. And it was, yeah, and it was like, yeah. Oh shit. Like, I guess, you know, it's hard to have, you know, and why should you, but like have historical perspective when you're in the middle of that, but like, you know, even like thinking about the lesser free trade hall show in Manchester, there's 30 people at that show. And it's yeah. like the most legendary yeah. show of all time. Yeah. And even shows that like, I consider to be so huge. are still in pretty small venue. I'm not saying for trench I'm saying for bands who I've seen mm-hmm. same thing. I'm like, I can't, I doubt that they were sold out or I know it wasn't a big venue. It was just to me, it was spectacular, you know? Yeah, no, I find when you go back to a venue and you look at it years later, you're like, oh, wow, this is way smaller than I remember. Yeah, exactly. But I guess that's because you're a kid and you physically grow up. And so that everything does feel a little bit smaller at that point. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally different. Do you you ever miss like doing uh, like a touring band or is it something where you like, because obviously, you know, as you say, you make a point of it not being the most pleasant experience. There are things about it that I miss. Um drumming from city to city is really great mm-hmm. you know playing the drums in atlanta and then you know north carolina somewhere that's i love that i love walking out into the audience and then seeing my drums up on some weird stage somewhere i'm like wow this is a different state and there's my drums that stuff i miss <clears throat> i miss you know what i miss um meeting other bands Mm. now i'm like 
wow, whatever happened to them? They were really nice. That was a great band. And I miss that. Um, I miss being excited about selling merch. Whoa, we made $60. This is $60 in cash. Um, and then I miss laughing with my friends in the van. Yeah. So those things I miss. Those things I miss and then looking at a tour book like oh here's our tour whoa this is a long one that's that that's exciting so that's what i'm gonna that's what i'm gonna think about right now the things that i do miss and those i did miss those did you ever go out opening for other bands on tour no uh, we opened for jonestown we opened for jawbox i don't know how many shows but i remember it was like a, still a string of shows mm-hmm. dog-faced hermans um can't remember who else, but as far as tour goes, touring goes, that's that's who we we played with. I've definitely seen. I've even sent you some like amazing f- trench mode flyers from Chicago popping up on that old Chicago flyers. Instagram oh yeah, yeah, I love when you send those. Those are well. I I just love those flyers because you guys are playing with like you know such amazing bands. And and another thing that's kind of come up since we talked the first time is like that period in Chicago, like early '90s Chicago it just feels like there's a DIY music explosion in that city where, you know, much like New York, there's like a million different types of bands going on, but it feels a little bit more connected than it was in New York. Yeah. I think it's just cause it's smaller. Like I think because it's like fewer people, um, I think there's something a little more focused about it, but, I, but speaking of flyers, Oh my God, that was like the focal point. That was a major part of the show was like, all right, we got to get to Kinko's. This one's going to be, uh, Damon's going to do a print of four frogs and a church. No way. Look at that. Make the <laughs> font bigger, you know, just like putting together. Like it was such a, also putting up flyers was like a whole job. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. You know, did yeah. you go uptown? Yeah. We went to this record store and this record store. Great. Uh, we got all these, we got glue and put them up on poles. I mean, what a, it took up so much time. Well, thank goodness you did, though, because here we are all these years later and, and people are still, you know, looking at these flyers. <laughs> like if you just. Oh, I love together. it. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And they were, I will say they were cool, cool flyers. They were not lame. They were like really, Damon did them. Well-designed and awesome. Was very happy about those flyers. And it's funny, like, it's an also a lost art that uh, I've got a friend who does a label in uh, in San Francisco, Scotty, or in Oakland, I should say, Scotty, uh, Tank Crimes. And he, like, he still makes a point that you flyer for shows and it, it will affect your draw. And here we are in this age where everyone's like, oh, let's just make a, you know, an Instagram post or a, a TikTok oh, video yeah. or, or something to have your promoter show at this point. But but, but but then you don't, right? Because you still, like, there's something about a physical flyer that's out there in the world. Like, it, it still catches my eye when I see one on the pole. Maybe more now oh, than I see what you did. mean. No, no, I, I meant, like, um, nowadays, as uh, much as I hate to use that word, yes, but it's, you know, that's what the requirement is, is, like, to put up an Instagram post. But, like, no, I'm in total agreement. That who that, What a great art form mm-hmm. the, a flyer is. I, it's still, I mean, I still see them once in a while, but it's, you know, so yeah, no, I'm with you. I, it's a great, great art form. It makes it more real or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. It adds, it adds legitimacy to it. Um, yeah. 
Uh, one thing we also talked about last time, but I just got to nerd out with you about it again, is that Octung Chicago, Octung Chicago's Fi. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, that comp, it's amazing when you go through that track list, just to back up my point further, um, that like, it's like the birth of the emo through Cap and Jazz, you know, your, yourself are on know. it as well. It's, I mean, Los Crudos is on it, like one of the most important hardcore bands of the 90s um, is on that. And did you ever play with Los Crudos? I can't remember. They are, man, they are like... I mean, I, I was, I'm like, you know, I know who they are and I'm aware of them, but like, I, I feel like we did, but someone might get me on a technicality like, actually, no, you didn't. <laughs> you so it's one did. of those things of like, am I, you know what, here's this, my assumption is that is that we did. I'm sure you probably, would, like, just it feels like that scene, uh, all those scenes were mixed together. There were shows that they used to do Elgin, Illinois. Yeah. Um, and that's where it would have been. This this guy um, Brian would put out shows out there, and um, Brian Peterson, and I. That's where I vaguely remember playing with them. If if we did, yeah, it's 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 once again like just I guess a testament about you know when, as you say because of the smaller population, but the fact that you have all these different styles of bands uh, mixing together, not just on comps but at shows, you know, like it it it's a. Uh, a testament to that like how diverse that sound was in there and that's not even counting like the the bigger touch and go stuff which was also i'm sure happening at the same time oh i'm looking at um the comp right now so i just grabbed it oh you have it you still have your vinyl on it i have the cd okay and so like and my memory was correct is that oh this is oxygen chicago Swai. this is the Swai. second one didn't i say Swai? yeah okay um what I remember about this cover is it doesn't look like the punk rock from before. This is what Chicago looks like to me. Like that's what punk rock looked like in Chicago. That's the look. I'm looking at a guy playing a bass. It's got like a zipper sweatshirt on work shoes. And then the front cover too is like, it's it's punk rock, but this is like a very different look. It's different than New York, mm-hmm. different than DC. It's like, this is, they picked the right pictures for it. Yeah, and it feels like DC, you know, like not not that this is, you know, by design, but like almost like Discord, it, it's, it's like, a, it's such a presence that it looms so large that the bands uh, are, tend to be of a certain style um, mm-hmm. at a certain point, whereas, in Chicago, it's like it, there's no sort of like overarching scene, so it just feels like it's all over the map, and everyone's playing together. Yeah. Oh my God. Smoking Jesus. Popes had a hit off this too, Smoking right? Smoking Popes, yeah. There they are. Maybe the biggest band from that scene. I don't know. It's hard to say because, like, you know, it's it's a, like we talked about, like the the influence that these bands would have. You know, like you know, we've talked about yourselves, but Cap and Jazz, obviously, through that emo yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, they got huge. Huge, yeah. Los Crudos, once again, like, yeah, you know, Vindictives and, and the pop punk stuff and the Beweevils and the pop punk stuff. Like, it's it's uh, a lot of, like, sort of crucial bands from the early 90s are, are represented on this comp. Yeah. Did they ever, like, reissue this or anything? I, it came out on vinyl on two colors. I'm trying to get every record on Underdog, um, which is the label that put it out, and I'm getting there. Uh, but no, they've never done like any sort of like proper sort of reissue of it. Even the Trenchmill stuff too. I'm surprised like that's never been reissued. And are, they, are Underdog like active? 
No, I think that's the label. Yeah, it was run by uh, Ben Weasel and and uh, Jughead from Screeching Weasel, along right. with their uh, their friend at the time. So I don't think they put they a record. Stopped? Yeah, I don't think they put out a record since like 90, uh, 97. But even as like a catalog label? No, I don't think I, you think any. I don't think any of this is on streaming. Maybe the Cap and Jazz stuff because Cap and Jazz ultimately winds up on J Tree. Yeah. Um, God. Oh, and Bill Weevils. I think Bill Weevils have reissued their stuff, but like, no, there's something like I don't think the Eight Bark Seven Inch is on there. Um, you know, and then, oh, of course, the Screeching Weasel stuff would probably be on there too. Man, what a label! So cool. Yeah, like I, I the story of punk rock is told through the labels I've always found, you know, there's always just like, yeah, it just shows it's such a like slice of, of scenes. Yeah, it's also like where you see the most like love. Cause it's like uh, a band, you know, they promote themselves and stuff, but when a label promotes a band, you're like, Oh man, they love them. Yeah. They really like you know, this person they, made that personal investment in this financially. They, they put effort into the artwork. They, you know, wrote little, you know, descriptions of the bands they called you know radio stations all that stuff yeah no and especially then too because it's not like there was a lot of hope of this stuff crossing over and getting popular like you're doing it because you love it yeah um and it's uh you know and, and once again like here we are all these years still looking back on this stuff so it did have resonance even if it is just on <laughs> one podcast yeah, but it's like, to me, it's like the biggest thing. Like the fact that you're doing this podcast is like, it's so weird. I, I just, this will always have like the biggest space in my heart for like, oh, it's such a corny word. I'm so sorry. But it's like, it's just, you know, it, to me, it's like the biggest thing. It's even because it's not just talking about classic punk rock. It's like, then it, when you, you want to get down to the punk rock that I actually played in and grew up with in, in Chicago, I'm just like, man, it's a, you know, it's just such a big part of my life. It's amazing how formative these years are. Like that's the, that was, that's always been the thing. And like with this podcast, I've, I've found that like when I was talking to people, like when I first met you at backstage of that show and, you know, I just went up to you and I just started talking to you about punk rock, you know, and I, when I met uh, Danger Aaron at that show too. And we just started talking about punk rock, you know, it's just like, when you all of us that came out of this genre or through this genre it just is so impactful while you're in it and it's such a short period of your life (laughs) yeah it really is although it seems like at the time it's like everything it's everything yeah and like years later it's still you know like the morals you kind of learn in it you know like are still things that you you react to later in your life oh all the time even like even when I'm do- doing, you know, comedy stuff, that that, that stuff always stays with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Corey Rusk and Ian MacKay and all all those people. That that they're, you know, who they are. It kind of o- always stays with me. Yeah. Um, also, like Bettina Richards from Thrill Jockey. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way that they ran, ran those labels, you know, mm-hmm. and, and protected them and everything. Yeah, no, it it, it, it go on. Sorry, no, 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 you, 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 you. No, I, I, I feel I was just gonna say exactly like you're saying, like it, it, these people become, you know, it's amazing when you talk to, you know, like, like Moby 
and Moby's talking about being the biggest rock star in the world and feeling guilty because he had Ian McKay on his shoulder the whole time being like, is this the thing to do? And, and you're, you're thinking about, well, Moby, the same guy that licensed every single song off that <laughs> record to a commercial. But like, you know, but like imagine that having that Ian McKay guilt having done that. <laughs> it <would've been laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I, oh God, I, I, really identify with that that is really really funny i i some the thing the person i hang out to the most is steve albini um because steve albini will say he's a little different in that like he loves saying that he doesn't care yeah which is great meaning in contractually <laughs> yeah. can we do this uh, i don't care i don't care what you do i don't care and so that stays with me sometimes. I kind of like, it's even better than just saying no. It's by saying, I don't care. I don't know. I just like, I, I do follow Steve's way of, of doing that. Of like, I don't, I don't need to know these kinds of details. He is, uh, he is never wrong. I will. <laughs> he is never wrong. <laughs> In any of my he's interactions, even when he's wrong, he is never wrong. No. God. <laughs> How does he do it? I, I and what a like what a genre, what a like a, a subculture that has given us these personalities, you know, like I know, and also these personalities, they were kind of like alone, like they're not part of like some army where they have a bunch of people backing them up. It must have been to 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 develop these personalities in the face of all of you know the music business and everything. I think it. I don't know. It must have been a real challenge, and they just did it. I guess it would have been, you know, it's different back then because you could kind of do it in your own little world, right? Like it wasn't like now where if you tried to do it or if you did it, you're like subject to the whole world. Yeah, uh, true. Like it would be. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, like I don't know. Could there be much like there couldn't be? Could there be another Ian McKay in the present day? Could there be another Steve Albini? In the present day oh man i don't know i don't know it's like thank god i don't have to like even consider it. i'm like oh well at god. least i lived at least i lived through the world where they could exist but yeah. i don't know <laughs> i have no idea and perhaps we're better never knowing i think that's the ultimate thing. yeah did you actually have any speaking of notorious personalities did you ever have any run-ins or see Gigi allen no not at all not at all it's so far not even close i don't think i i don't think i've ever met anyone who had been to a performance i don't think i've that's you know i mean i i know joe coleman oh really you know joe oh yeah i'm a huge fan i like i fuck it like the steel tips are one of my favorite bands ever (laughs) he's uh no i worship joe coleman yeah yeah, I mean, come on, what a, what an artist. Yeah, absolutely, and and like, yeah, and and someone that was there at the very beginning, right? Like, have you ever seen that? There's that footage of Steel Tips. I think they tacked it on the beginning of the Dead Boys DVD that MVD put out years ago. But there's a, a, a like a pro shot performance clip of the Steel Tips playing, and Joe Coleman comes out and of course uh, explodes. Uh, in the what, you mean the, with the fire with the firecrackers and stuff. Yeah, he does the firecrackers and he, he kind yeah. of attacks the audience and yeah, and then the <laughs> band starts playing and it's yeah, it's. Phenomenal. I think they put that in his documentary. I've seen it in other places too, but 
Well, there's that old, yeah. do you remember the, the research back in the day did a documentary on him? Yes. Uh, what was it called? I'm trying to remember. Like, it was, like was it Joe uh, Joe Coleman's But I think it's come out. I think it's, is that what it is? Well, then there's, they made another one with Asia Argento in it, like later, like more recently, I mean. But there's like one from the like early 90s that was like, VHS, you know, order from the back of forced exposure magazine. Yeah, yeah. Type thing. But it's this is such a dumb thing to say, but it's called something, but I forget what it is. The passion of Joe. No, like uh, it's the right, yeah, yeah, something like that. I'm kind of so lazy. I'm like, now I'm gonna go to my shelf. You you, you have all that shit? I don't I don't know. But damn. I don't know. But it's not V it wouldn't be VHS. Do I have a DVD of something of Joe's? As soon as I hang up with you, I'm gonna find it. I'm, but I have something. I have something of his, um, but it's like a bootleg DVD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe that's the maybe that that must be it then. Like that research stuff, because that's totally. Now that you say "Passion of the Joe," that actually does sound familiar. That's what I think it might, but I'm also thinking it might be Joe Coleman's superstar. But that knows also, I don't know if you remember this uh 90s uh tape trading classic, but the Charles Manson superstar. No, that one, that one I don't know. Where it's, it's just like a one hour VHS interview with Charles Manson where the interviewer has a lot of sympathy for, for Charles and just lets him go. You know, like it's Ooh. not like Geraldo, where Geraldo's, you know, going in there with a bit of an agenda. Like this guy's just like yeah, talk. So in, in Charles Manson, it's just like it's like you're hearing him scatting or or freeform poetry or something. It's wow. It's really weird. I'm sure that's on YouTube, but that was called that was called Charles Manson Superstar. So I don't think it's Joe Coleman Superstar. I have a Gigi Allen one. Hated. Hated. Do you ever you never worked with uh Todd Phillips, right? No. Cause I would that's the guy I would love to hear stories from from making that movie. He, I met with him. I think he sent me this. I had a meeting with him, but I've never worked with him. Uh, have you watched it? I think I have not. Oh my God. You, Fred, I am telling <laughs> you that is the, you got to watch it for the parts with Didi Ramon alone. Oh, Didi. It is amazing. He joins the band and doesn't really know what he's getting into. Um, oh. It is, it is without a doubt, the most extreme music uh, performance video. And I believe on that DVD, it also has Gigi Allen's uh, last concert footage, which is after he played the gas station in Manhattan, just him wandering around the Lower East Side naked, trying to hail a cab. Oof. It's, it's a heavy watch. What did he die of? A heroin overdose. Right. In the hotel room. He didn't do it on stage, though. He never got the chance to. Uh, that was his big threat, that he was going to do it on stage one day. Wow. Well, here's the, he, this is, you know, not to bore you with, with all this shit, but, like, the gnarliest thing is after he died, they became, like, the apostles of Christ after Christ died, like, all his fans, and just start, like, wandering around, apparently, the Lower East Side of New York, just robbing people and fucking with people. Like I've had Jeez. multiple people come on the podcast that grew up in New York in like the mid nineties, post Gigi Allen dying and just talk about how the murder junkies just fucked with them. And, and in some cases tried to ruin their lives. I remember 
one time uh, when I was talking to Jello Biafra, he was saying that that was like kind of like their goal was like to scare people. He's like, we used to scare people on the street. Like he, that was like, I guess it was different than the Gigi Allen army, but there was this other sort of physical thing happening. I guess it's kind of like Tim Leary and like the idea of like showing up and f- having freakouts, you know, and, and freaking out norms. I guess so. Yeah. That, that's, that seems like what, what the goal was. And it's just like such a thin line before you're, you're all of a sudden, you know, you know, got some family and you're Charles Manson, you know, like you're, yeah. you're really walking a dangerous edge when you're, when you're messing with normal people, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had this guy also Omar Doom who uh, is only in Quentin Tarantino movies um, he's been in like four or five Quentin Tarantino movies and he hung out with the Gigi Allen gang post Gigi Allen dying and he was part of that crew wow and now he's just in Quentin Tarantino films it's very you. It was, the other interesting thing is that I didn't realize how interested you were in Gigi Allen I think he's just like I'm not you know, obviously, there's no hero worship with this at all. No, no, no I wasn't saying that. But just no, no, like, no. And I, I know. I just, I want to make yeah. sure you didn't think that I was like. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I think there's, there's just no other, ex- thank, thankfully, no other performer that extreme ever, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, uh, like just willing to be. And I think the thing that also, from from what you hear in interviews with people that hung out with him, is he kind of thought he was going to be famous you know, and kind right. of thought this was going to be the ticket, you know? And at one point he kind of was like, he did that when he did that comeback, when he got out of prison, like Thurston Moore and Jay Maskus and Gerard Cosloy are all in his band. Yeah. So yeah. He, he could have done it. He could, we could live in a world where he was on like 120 minutes if he had survived. That, but that seems totally possible. <laughs> it does seem terrifyingly possible. Yeah. It would have been like, like a way more scary Marilyn Manson. <laughs> but it also, on the other, it could have been the kind of thing scary Marilyn Manson. But he could have been one of those people who, like, that was in his past. So yeah. they'd be like, "Gigi, you were you used to be that guy, and now you produce this show for HBO, and you're, yeah. you know, you're doing your spoken word. How do you look back on the days when you were that Gigi Allen?" That could have been his, his reality. Guys, too. I'm through it. I'm through it. I don't yeah. want to talk yeah. about the shitting on the people anymore. Yeah. I mean, Joe, Col- I mean, Joe Coleman doesn't do the, those performances either, too. No, that's true. But I think I think the thing is, Joe Coleman also was a brilliant artist. And and Gigi wasn't the brilliant poet I think he thought he was. Right. I'm a little bit more of a show. A little bit more of a show. Yeah. yeah. A little bit. <laughs> you know, like El Duce is another example of that. Um, you know, out with from the mentors. This you know, I don't know about. You don't remember El Duce? He no. He, he also claims that Courtney Love at one point uh, in in uh, that Curtin Courtney documentary with Nick Broomfield mm-hmm. claims that he was hired to kill Kurt Cobain. Really? Yeah. He's, yeah. You, oh, you got to watch that documentary. It is it is a phenomenal <laughs> movie. But his parts alone are are worth the uh, price of admission. But then he was hit by a train a couple weeks later and died. But really? Yeah. And their whole thing was that they were their Their whole gimmick was that they were violent sexual abusers of women. And that's what they pitched the band on. Like that was the gimmick. 
um, and they were signed to Metal Blade Records <laughs> and played on. Wow. Uh, they uh, made some appearances on the Jerry Springer show real early on. Mm-hmm. Um, they would wear black sort of clan hoods on stage. Like everything about this band just seems like a nightmare, but it was kind of not crossover popular, but certainly, you know, main poking at the mainstream in a way that something like this should never poke at the mainstream. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. and to make it even weirder, this dude, El Duce grew up in Seattle, played in this band that featured members of the screamers, Nikki six from Motley Crue, and that the guy who played drums, who passed away recently, but he played in like all the industrial bands and he played in REM in the last few years. Bill, I can't remember his last name now. Oh, I can't believe I'm blanking on it, but he's a very famous drummer. But they, okay. they all played in this glam band in the late 70s in Seattle. Late 70s? Yeah. Early 80s, late, late, late 70s. Like the first wave of punk rock stuff. Wow. What an assemblage of humanity totally yeah like, i want to see them together again and to talk about oh my god what were we yeah sadly i think nikki six might be the only surviving member of of this group <laughs> right now but uh you know that's what i would want to find out like forget motley Crue stories those have been told i want to find out yeah. about, you know yeah. what, was, what was rehearsals like at that band and apparently yeah. they, they came out of a high school mark arm told me they came out of a high school where like like it's it's like the most incredible music high school ever. Sir Mix a lot went there. Like all the members of all the Seattle punk bands went there. Duff McKagan went there. Like everyone went to this weird high school in Seattle. What's do you know the name of the high school? He says it on the episode. I can't. Uh, <laughs> I wish I'd written it down. But uh, um, that's so cool. Yeah, that is really really cool. It's that's it's, a truly cool high school. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I, you know what, and I think. Uh, it, it speaks to the fact that, like, once again, punk rock kind of connects so many different worlds, right? Like, so many different people, you know? Like, yeah, seeing you do that sketch, you know, we talked about it last time on SNL, though. All of a sudden, it hit me like, oh, man, this dude is a deep head about oh, punk yeah. hardcore. <laughs> yeah. I got it. I mean, I got away with putting it on, you know, what, get doing it on the air. I'm just so glad it, it made it. I would say that's the, you know, you know, obviously the the third song of the Fear performance on Saturday Night Live and that are the two punkest moments in the history of Saturday Night Live. Oh, coming from you, I I really really appreciate it. Well, and I well, I I tell you. And also you brought up on that first conversation the B52s and how important seeing them on SNL was for you. Yeah. And kind huge. of huge and I I never really thought of them as being you know, like, you know, obviously I love that band and I think they're hugely important, but I think I never really thought of them in that way, like as being and that performance in particular being such an important gateway. And since you were on, so many people have come on and talked about how key that particular performance was in getting them into this thing. Oh, really? The B the B-52's performance? Yeah, like it's like almost like that Velvet Underground uh, thing that cliche that everyone says like everyone that bought the velvet and underground record when it came out went out and started a band like but it feels like almost everyone that saw that b52 performance went out and started a band yeah yeah that's i'm so glad other people have said that that was just spun everything around in in the way that that like we separate we, we could separate new wave and punk rock all you want but like 
that to me was like punk rock with a capital P. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I've kept you way longer than I told you I would, uh, Fred. Anytime you want to come back and and be punished more and have your memory, uh, you know, just taken to the ringer more, uh, let me know. I, I get so much out of this because number one, I learn about stuff that I didn't know. And then you actually make me like, I really go down the hallways of my brain of like, wait, oh, let, let's see what we got here. So I really, really appreciate that. And um, you're just, I, your message of punk rock, I, I believe in you. I believe in your message. And um, I want to add one more quick thing that there's like a new Scissor, Scissor Girls are part of that Chicago scene. Uh-huh. And they've got a record. They like they. I think they're releasing their demo. Um, I think sometime soon. Scissor Girls. Oh wow! Okay, well they're definitely they're I will. That, that that you know like and that's the thing you always rep for bands, you always support you know the cool bands. So man, I'm I'm uh, yeah I, I'm I'm happier out there waving that flag for for punk rock still. Oh, and I'm glad you are too. And, and my kids are going to like, you know, I'm talking to Cole, you know, I'm talking to Cole right now on the phone. So the kids are stoked. That's right. I put him in bed tonight. I'm like, I'm going to go uh, later on. I'm, I'm going to talk to Cole on the phone. That's and right. It, my five-year-old was very excited. Oh, he was I'm so glad. He was pretty fucking impressed. I talked to, uh, to Deathstroke the other day, but it was much more impressive talking to Cole. Wow. Well, thank you. I'm really, I'm glad that honor was mine. I own a junk shop. Where are you getting all this shit? Mostly thrifting, but sometimes just on the street. You know, the stuff I found on the street is really cool. It's like, I've got, I found like a, a mini display to VGA, uh, like cord, a 20 foot HDMI cord, a copy of Super Mario Galaxy for Wii, a CBC, um, this bag that I used to hold my, um, oh, you can't see it. It's a Radio Canada <laughs> Canadian Broadcasting Corp mobile recording kit, like rucksack, I mean, like like that you would kind of have over to the shoulder and it's like really convenient and I can put my stuff in it. And um, yeah, like I, 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 I and t-shirts at, at thrift stores and shit at garage sales. It's like, it doesn't make any sense, but you know what it does life? I, uh, I, the bet, the wildest shit I've ever found on the street was one time walking on my mom's old street, uh, Carla in Riverdale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found outside this house two water damaged death in June records and the first liquid, liquid 12 inch. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, oh, that's wow. wild. It just like, and I found them. And like, how nuts is it that I never knocked on the door? Like I never went down walking past this house. Like, you know, I, I granted I didn't live there anymore. I was like I already moved out. But like I just never had a curiosity knocking on the door being like, hey, what are you into? Because this shit is fucking crazy that you have this just sitting outside your house. Did you sell it? No, I I, I traded the death in June records <laughs> and I kept the liquid liquid 12 inch. So I still have that liquid liquid 12 inch. And it's it is slightly water damaged on the cover, but yeah, holy shit, I'll never find another one. I had all these um Hip hop twelve inches and uh, ultramagnetic MCs albums and um, but they were being stored at my sister's friend's place in a closet and um, 
I think cleaning products leaked into the um, vinyl stuff. And so the labels are water damaged and, and are sorry, are like chemical damaged. And right. then, um, and there's, and, and some of the vinyl is, but yeah, it's, it's quite frustrating to discover that it's, it's the worst. Which ultra magnetic MCs album? Um, I think critical beatdown and oh, okay. also, also the four horsemen, which I was just thinking oh, about the other are day. You, is that I in good condition? It's chemical uh, damage. <laughs> chemical damage. I think but, but the it's, a, it's a vinyl. I think the four horsemen is in good condition. Now. How much are you going to sell that for? I don't know. It's kind of complicated because actually this guy lent them to me like 20 years ago. <laughs> Oh, they're yours. <laughs> but it's a guy I know. It's someone who's like around. So I'm like, should I just give these back to Mark? Like, you know. Oh, Mark like, Jared? No, this guy, Mark, who does this uh, stuff, Ono Kabazian. He used to work at Grasshopper Records. Um, he's an awesome dude. Uh, but he doesn't even live in Toronto anymore. The records got well, chemical damage, too. So you got to like, when you call him back, be like, dude, do you want these records but, back? Caveat. They are chemical damage. <laughs> just to let you know how amazing Cool Keith is, because I've kind of been getting back into Cool Keith. Like he's so incredible. Like he's such a legend. Um, it's wild. He's one of the most, and he still works. You know, and like, oh, my, uh, well, you know my story, right? I I kind of remember that you had a Cool Keith story. I I went and interviewed him for yeah. Much Music when I did uh -huh. the Wedge, and it was he was playing the. Uh, rock pile was it called the rock pile of course yeah no no rock it wasn't the rock pile. pile what was the sketchy kind of like prison themed venue oh you're talking about the one that was uh was the it generator Vatican? no the one that was out they had two yeah. locations they had one out west and they had one out east one is well, well, rock no, pile no. yeah is it okay. rock pile? well is that guy from there, yeah. the guy from um the guy there was like the guy from uh the big bob yeah i can't remember his name he opened rock pile uh at kipling and there might have been a second location, but there, then there also... was. Yeah, that's it. It is the rock pile. There was a rock pile yeah. east okay. that was out in Scarborough. And it was oh, like in a strip mall that had a strip club. Um, and it was this, you know, very, you know, it made the one out west look like the horseshoe by comparison. And by people, way, I... people listening are not going to have any idea about uh -huh. that comparison that aren't from Toronto, but it makes it look like the fancy club as opposed to the not fancy club. But I went out there and we interviewed Cool Keith. He was playing there. Um, and then after the interview, the interview went was awesome. He was super cool. And then after yeah. the interview, him and his manager cornered me. And they're like, where do you go to buy videos in this town? Like porn. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh, like just like a store? And they're like, no, no, no. Like the part of town that has like lots of stores that would have it. And I'm like, well, you probably want to go. <laughs> Like we're yeah, you're in Scarborough, yeah. so there is going to be some yeah. stuff out here. But I'm like, if you, if, I guess you probably want to go to like, I guess Young and Dundas area. They're like Young and Dundas. That's it. Okay. Yep. Okay. They're like, okay, we'll be. They're like, right. And then they split. And then my friend stayed for the show. I had to go home, you know, of course, to the family. And my friend stayed to the show and said, "Cool, Keith was like an hour and a half late because he did yeah. a horn run." Yeah, show. I I've been to a, a few Cool Keith shows where the especially one in Montreal. Uh, during Pop Montreal with DJ Vadim, I believe, opening. And he uh, was super late. But on top of that, the best thing about Cool Keith's 
high level of frustratingness is that he has a thing he does in his show where he does like a medley of like all the songs of his that you know you like from like you want you're really excited to see but he just does the choruses and if anyone knows cool keith choruses they're just the title of the song repeated <laughs> like six times <laughs> you know and uh and and he'll do that medley sometimes for like 30 to 40 minutes <laughs> <laughs> and uh but i had an interview with cool keith too it's a great interview he's 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 really some something else and and this album the four horsemen is just means so much to me because um it's just like an example i think i can't remember if it was us we were talking about like lyrics and stuff and specificity but um i mean the whole album is about like I think a baseball player or a baseball team, like the San Francisco team from like the sixties, <laughs> three brothers with checks, San Francisco, Harvey. That's the name of the first song. Oh uh, yeah. I, know, I, I was you know, a big cool key uh, fan. I think my favorite. So uh, I think I like the Dr. Doom record the most. Oh, Dr. Doom is hilarious. I was, that, I was a big fan of that one and sex styles of course um, that's my favorite i mean black elvis is really underrated Matthew yeah that's great too really good stuff uh spank master is amazing yeah spank master again with like his great song choices has a song called nba where he's just generally insulting nba players <laughs> well he he hooked up with jackie jasper is actually hdv am i wrong yeah. yeah he's he did lots of work with hdv for sure yeah and hdv was a pimp of the microphone he was a toronto rapper yeah sex drugs and violence was that his album yeah no that was bdp wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> uh no uh yes no that was sex and violence no oh yes God. that's that album was called that album is called Sex and Violence. And I believe I'm, I'm finding uh, HDV's discography right now as we talk. Well, I, I, I am, I'm kind of obsessed with HDV. I can't get any of his stuff anywhere. So anytime I can. Oh, I have an HDV CD you can have. Are you I serious? I, I bought one in I bought one in Scarborough. How are we going to do this during the pandemic? I will drive over to your place. Yeah, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. I'll go over Who the knew this podcast would get me a HDV CD. Well, I hope Danko. I didn't sell it or anything. But Danko, I, I, I fucking knew, man. This podcast, that's <laughs> what we do here. We're like the Rosetta, like it's just like needful things in the Stephen King book, you know? You just come into this podcast, <laughs> next thing you know, you're walking out with like the CD you've been looking for for years. But yes, oh, I, it I is called Sex, HDV. Drugs, and Violence. Se and and BDP okay. is Sex and Violence. Sex and violence. Okay. So just to let you guys, just to let your listeners know. And the fact is, if you are a hardcore punk fan, you are probably also a fan of certain eras of hip hop, including the era that HDV was part of. Thank you very much. This has been a message from your hip hop uh, scholar, Nardwar Flanagan. Nar <laughs> I get a lot of Nardwar comparisons. Well, you went into the Narvar, Narvar voice there, I thought. I didn't yeah. even mean to. Thank you very hey, much. We're, we're, are you dividing this up into the different times we talk and putting it all together? Yeah, it's going to be divided into sections. Oh, because I was... This we is the backbone left, interview. This is, we left off the last one 
while we were talking about beefs. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I started to run my mouth as I, <laughs> as I get, I do often. And, I, and then I later kind of regret it. So I, I, I messaged you after and I said, Hey, could you take out that band that I mentioned one of the bands that I mentioned? Cause I thought I threw them under the bus unfairly because they didn't really ever do anything to me. And here I am 20 years later, <laughs> re- reigniting or, or igniting a beef that never was trying to be a, a, a tough, cool guy. And uh, listen, I, I had no problems. Even, well, no one knows who I'm talking about except for you two guys. Yeah, we're the only but, one. yeah but it really got me thinking after I messaged you, like I just reevaluated, you know, my attitude. Dude, career suicide are cool. They probably wouldn't have cared anyway, but you know, it's cool that, you know, I, I'm glad you tried to bury the hatchet with him yeah yeah i, I mean am, hanoi am, rocks are some of the best guys yeah, I know. yeah like okay. I, you guys are, no. are are lying you were like you're making up bands. obviously we're making <laughs> yeah. up no i love both those bands no it was a it was a band uh that isn't around anymore 20 a canadian band and and you know I, I when we started our band i had a tendency much like Nick and, and much like you, Damien, we've gotten into beefs with bands and stuff. The three of us. Oh, yes. Have our oh, own God. Yeah. With bands oh. And, you know, I've, I've reached the point where I, I don't. I, I will have a beef with a band if they start stuff with me, but I don't want to be an instigator. And I thought what I mentioned on your podcast last time was uncalled for. thing to me it was just a member of the band uh she answered me in a in a way that i thought was you know kind of you know reeked of attitude for no reason danko i don't know i'm still here i'm still here That's oh weird. i'm here oh you're here okay. okay can you guys hear me you dropped yeah, you keep, yeah you dropped we out lost there you at, we lost you at reeked of attitude Oh, so what we're well, doing, we lost you. You now revisiting what made you mad. And <laughs> yeah, so, I can I, no, this is like, this is part of the process in my, my internal dialogue here. But I just want to I want to say. No, I, I'm sorry. I'm going too deep into nothing. You're going back. Into it. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting, yeah, just getting. because I, I just, I was, I just reevaluated because we had to talk about beefs and I was like coming off like I'm a tough guy going, yeah, I had a, tons of beefs. That's not something to be proud of, you know, like, no, I think, I think I should really like, you know, get off my high horse sometimes and just be chill about it. Cause I did mention there's people in my, my life, my personal life who kind of che- try to check me and, uh, and they're not wrong. You mm-hmm. know? Like I just, so, uh, you know, I just, I, sometimes I get too offended too easily. That's, that's my problem. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there. Yeah, no, and I, I feel the same. <laughs> um, I feel the same. You've been on the receiving end. I've today. been yes. on the receiving end. But also, I've also been, I feel like I've just been involved with a lot of people who have offended you, you know, as uh, rather than that, like, I just, and and I'm not denying that that's a thing, like, like worth being, you know, uh, mentioning. You know, but it's just um, at some point when you have this list of grievances, it just uh, piles up so high, you know, and it's like, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, well, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like an Artie Lang thing where he kind of didn't want to get off 
whatever was ailing him because he thought that was the source of his creativity. And sometimes I feel the anger is what really pushes me forward. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it's performance or whether it's, you know, um, just doing stuff. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Like, uh, we've probably all had that to some extent, right? Just being in the types of music that we've played. Mm-hmm. You know? and yeah, it's a fairly aggressive music. So the anger should be there to match it. But, and I think um, trying to find beefs sometimes, like like the band that I mentioned where it doesn't exist, was yeah. sometimes it's too too cheap, you know? Well, it also becomes like, you know, it's part of the show, you know? Like, you're obsessed with these great yeah. beefs in music history like people make a big deal mm-hmm. out of these these rivalries that are imaginary or real in some cases but at the same time like it's romanticized so much that when you first get into music you almost like you know when, especially when you first kind of get into the stage where you have a band that has enough of a platform you're like oh well, let's let's have a beef like let's yeah. let's mm-hmm. let, like mm-hmm. who's out there offending me right now and yeah yeah as you get older and i think you get a little bit wiser and maybe it's not like this anymore like maybe people have moved past this but you just kind of go oh that was ridiculous <laughs> like i really well, yeah. yeah i mean you know i can't think of the last time i started beef and then in comedy you know it's just it's not even that different than uh what you guys uh what musicians have where it's like eventually you know someone you think is the worst like unless they're really outside of your circle it's like they're still around you know you might see them somewhere and like what good is all of this now it's awkward and they might do something nice for you and uh then what you're gonna like have to think about how long you were pissed at what they were doing you know and then well but i think nick I think you, you're, gentlemen, you're can you about... continue for a second? I just go to the washroom. I'll be back in one minute. Okay. <laughs> just go. Keep well, going. <laughs> but I think, Nick, what you're talking about are, are things, are beefs that are actual beefs. And what I was addressing with, with Damien was a non-existent beef. Well, no, I mean, I'm talking about I've, if you see somebody live, like, I mean, not to throw each of us under the bus in the comedy thing but it's like when we would go to comedy shows when we were first starting when i was first starting to do comedy and you'd come out with me i think that that we were in order to feel confident about what we were doing we had to hold the whole thing in disdain you know yes no i totally understand what you mean yeah that is definitely but we well, are we talking did. about two different things. I agree with you. Like you're you're talking about like literally just like creating something out of nothing for just Well, it's not nothing. Well. I still hold <laughs> resentment to what that person said. Yeah. You know, I I still but not enough to turn it into a beef. That's just you and that's just me and my problems or or you know or, <laughs> and I shouldn't I shouldn't, you know, uh, say it in a public forum and turn it into something that that is a beef. You know, that's just we all have th- we all have opinions of people where we have no public beef, but we still kind of privately just go, oh, what a yeah. douchebag or yeah. what an asshole. But we'll never say it publicly because mm-hmm. we don't want to turn it into a thing. And I felt when we last spoke, uh, I had I was turning 
uh, a private opinion into a public beef. Well, yeah, this must be something that happens on like podcasts a lot because it's just not the same as an interview. And a lot of time you're, it's like us three, the three of us talking are just like, we know each other well enough that we'll just say whatever. But then yeah, at some point. I've had gnarly shit like that happen. Like I've had multiple people come on here and, and say something about someone, you know, and, and it's, you know, and I like, and I think nothing of it. And then all of a sudden the person writes me like, yeah, what the fuck? And I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. You're right. I didn't think about that. You're, you're, you're right. I can see that now. And so yeah. I, I really, yeah, you know, but it's also like, there's some people that have truth that they want to tell too, you know, and also who, sure, sure. You know, so it's, it's like a, obviously it's a, it's a, um, it's delicate. It's delicate. Yeah. I've had, I've had some people like say some stuff where, you know, they've, they've gotten themselves in situations. I had, I've had people say something about stuff about people that wasn't necessarily positive, but then it led to them talking and they became friends out of it. So, you know, yeah. right. Right. It works. Weirdly. Well, in that spirit, in that spirit, I will say that, um, you know, we mentioned Robin black last time. I, look, there's no beef. I mean, JC in our band, he's, he's like privately told me to like, cool the fuck down <laughs> and uh so so in that spirit i i, I want to take back everything i said it all happened and the anger was there but it, the anger shouldn't be there like in 2020 yeah you know? and i i should let that be known as well is that you know in the brief period of time that i was flirting with the idea of holding myself accountable and contacting all people i felt i'd done wrong uh, I was like, oh, I might have to hit up Robin Black and say, I'm sorry about that. Then I didn't, but it's like, you know, in the end, what it is, I think is for me, and I, 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 th I can really relate it to being younger than I am now, which is like, especially with the anger thing is like, you kind of want that fuel. Like you don't know where it's coming, going to come from necessarily. So yeah, that, yeah, that's what I was. Yeah. yeah. And it's that record snob thing too, where you're yeah. like, well, I like this music, but I don't like that music, you know? Well, it's all and born out of insecurity. Right. And I think mm -hmm. when you start getting yeah. on stage, you kind of have to like, so much of it is about ego and, 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 and vibrato, uh, you know, bravado and just kind of like trying to put yourself out there as being something so you can get on stage and act a fool and entertain people like that, which it, is such an I mean, unnatural it, thing to do, but uh -huh. it, it lends itself to this sort of like ego and insecurity kind of constantly being at play, you know? Well, and, and, and that's exaggerated male bullshit as well. Like yeah. not what you're saying, but like, I think that that's a big part of fronting a band. And I think that in some ways that's like, uh, like what we were, are, we're all doing, you know, especially off top. Like, it's like, you see these models that are like ridiculous and you kind of subvert them because it's funny to be a dick to actually just being like a dick, you know? And, and like, you know, or like I'm confronting this guy cause I think they're lame, you know? And it's like, I know that's ridiculous and, but I love ridiculous. And it's like, well, other people just think you're being like unnecessarily mean. <laughs> well, my whole thing with beefs is I never confronted anybody. My, my beefs would start when they would poke at me. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, so you, you doing, thing. you doing, yeah, you doing what Rob, to Robin, Robin <laughs> would be, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I, I just apologize and then literally snickered when you were like, "You do." I mean, the thing I where we dressed up like that. them for 
Halloween I still hold that as like, a show with them. <laughs> yeah, I still hold that night uh, or that show as like one of the biggest balls I've ever seen on stage <laughs> do that. Like that's the and so that's my, that was my go-to the last time we spoke. I mean, it's but just just lack. Of if I was experience. Robin, if I was Robin and I was me, me being Robin and my attitude, I would hold a grudge against you for life. Yeah, I think Robin is cool. You know, I think that's the ultimate thing at the end of the day is that, you know, and I think that's what you realize as you get older is that, fuck, we all, like the fact that, you know, here's a person that probably fucking liked the New York Dolls and the Stooges. And <laughs> right. we're in a world where there are so few people that like that stuff. Like, I think that's the thing as mm-hmm. I get older, I look at people yeah. that at one point I would have been like, well, they're not into my type of, my brand of counterculture. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and now I'm like, fuck they were in a counterculture how cool was that no, it's it's absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. true i mean it's like yeah, yeah, it, yeah. i i weirdly relate it to i think it's reading, true that's such a good point yeah reading reading rick james's autobiography and like understanding that like he describes his music and like the amount of influences for it not that i thought rick james was like uh, he, he was like pretty brilliant like before I read this, but an understanding that it was this combination of like orchestral funk and jazz and all this and disco and all this shit. I was like, wow, like everybody's like in a lot of successful bands have like a pretty interesting recipe that just because I don't agree with doesn't mean it's not like there, it doesn't contain elements of things you like. And, and that's something I learned oddly enough from the music of little peep. You know, like yeah. Lil, that guy, Lil Peep, and uh, is like some of his stuff. I, I is like too much for me. But the fact that he has this like Lincoln Park influence and other stuff from this like emo era that I wanted nothing to do with. Um, not that I'm equating Lincoln Park to emo, but I enjoy a, a lot of his songs because it's this combination of a, like hip hop, like of a certain type, and this. It's like, oh, like when you go 10 years later and you see the impact it has on like other music and it's kind of a good impact, it's like, oh, like what am I doing wrong? And just to to say this about Robin Black is like, honestly, all I ever heard from like, I like, yeah, we had like a graffiti war with each other or something, but in the jam in, in building, but, but like, all I ever heard was he'd go up to people and be like, why don't they like us? <laughs> and yeah. then, and like, there was no, like he, he took the Joe Biden route mm-hmm. essentially, <laughs> just kind of let, let us, you know, carve out a niche for people who were pissed at. I can't him. remember if I mentioned the story. I think I did the last time we spoke about, you know, the, the backstory to our beef that nobody ever saw or heard about. And that just sits with me. Um, so, so, uh, you know, I, I have to learn to just let it go. And if I see Robin, this is what JC told me, because I actually saw Robin somewhere a couple of years back, maybe three, four years, two, three years ago somewhere. And I told JC and JC said, why didn't you go up to him and say hi? Right. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know what that guy did in 1999 to us? <laughs> so, like, I got to let go. And, and um, yeah, so so when I mentioned, like, last time we spoke, it, it sent me on. And then I don't I think you, I don't think you told us the story. Did I, did I, am I forgetting? 
Is it the weed and I the think concussions? It, no, it was an uh, interview no, or something. No, no. Yeah, there's several incidents that led <laughs> up to the beef, but that no one got to see. But yeah. there was one time my girlfriend at the time wanted to introduce me to Robin because she was friends with both of us. And she oh, you guys would get along. So we went out for drinks. I believe it was upstairs at the Elmo. I cannot really remember the place, but it was the three of us and then a friend of his who was in another band that I didn't know. Oh yeah, from, you did tell from, me this, yeah. Yeah, from they were from the same town and they just ended up talking and name dropping and <laughs> not really talking to me. And so I quietly sat there and um, you know, my, my resentment just grew, but by the end of it, you know, I, I was done. And that's just, that's just how I'm built. Hang on. I'm going to get some water. Myself. I, I, I don't like to exclude people like that. Like yeah, I basically yeah. get beefs when I feel I would never treat that person the way they're treating me. And that's yeah, when no. I go, should this be beef be activated? And then that's, that is what I use. Uh, and, and I say, yes, I would never treat that person that way. They treated me this way. Beef activated. It's uh, one I'm not defending, you know, or excusing, you know, that exclusion in that conversation. But at the same time, I, one thing I will say is that just from the outside looking in at you at that time, you had been portrayed as such like a rock and roll superhero that I imagine like once again, it's the ego thing that he was probably intimidated. You know, I know I was super fucking intimidated by you back then. Like you were like, you know, like. 30 feet tall you know like i remember the bristle bruce article that like talking about you guys and it was just like so much energy around the band and mystique that it, it's intimidating but here's the thing i've heard that said before but but here's the thing is like i was probably wearing a club monaco sweater yeah and like yeah. gap khaki pants like just very unassuming yeah like and a baseball I, I, hat yeah. And I don't walk into a room like, you know, like, like, uh, like if you see Lemmy or Michael Monroe walk into a room, they walk into a room. Well, let me I always this. try to hide, you know, like, but don't um, you have two earrings on one earring on each ear? And they were big. <laughs> yeah, that, they, you kind of had this like yeah. buccaneer thing, you know, like I, I, and I'm, I'm, once again, buccaneer. you know, once again, to bring it back to like the fan perspective of the time, I remember when you walked in backstage at the lions club to sing with countdown to oblivion and it was like oh shit like a rock star walk not because you you know you had that attitude but just because that's like the aura that had been given to you but by sing with toronto at the time did you see i had no i had no idea that i i had no nothing i i, I nothing that was There's still nothing. that was the, the coolest thing ever like when you came out and you did the youth of the day song i think you did like a black flag song maybe a negative approach negative approach well. song but did you do that with us too why do i have a memory of that is it just like no you were at that show with you guys. oh i don't know maybe you I, also did something else with them but I, I don't i don't remember that at a hardcore show well didn't you, i sing wash dish or something uh yes, but we or, we, or we something like that. We don't mention any Tinkler Combo song titles. <laughs> we just tell people that we're a good band, <laughs> and we wait until an era where people are uh, really, really, really like into sarcasm <laughs> and satire, and uh, made by teenagers. And <laughs> so basically, it's when like um, 
what's that band like like angry simones kind of resurgence <laughs> no, yeah. yeah the meat uh, man when the meat man uh popular comeback meat. starts but but yeah uh but i was gonna say like you know i didn't have that with Danko as much like when did we meet do you think like what's our meet cute i can't place it I, I i cannot place it i don't know i mean i think it was just that i was going to shows because of my buddy mike gribben and deb in them and so i would be at shows horse shack like your old band was often opening oh. and maybe even violent brothers all the way from the opera house to did you guys open for jesus lizard at the horseshoe the horse shack horse shack band did we yeah. open up for the jesus lizard yeah yeah so i saw you with jesus lizard i saw you maybe with mule or or laughing oh and, the, yeah, they, yeah, and, yeah um and i i knew jc from cat rocket because i was seeing yeah. that band back then so you was in cat rocket yeah yeah i got yeah, a cat yeah. rocket seven inch i think i have two different versions yeah. of it well, he's playing on it bro whoa he's playing on it that's yeah. fucking yeah. wild yeah yeah he's probably on most of all the most of the recordings where they were getting the most attention he, they were getting attention you guys band. are blowing my mind this is like a whole other side of Toronto. I mean, Cat Rocket had a period of time where they were almost in that, like, I don't want to say belly, but like something along those lines, like, right, like, right, like in the like heavenly or something. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, and and uh, I I had I saw a bunch of good Cat Rocket shows. I, I was into Cat Rocket when they were out, and uh, you know, but and but but also, you know, Danko Jones were very supportive of Team Chord Combo from the word go, and also. The other reason I think that I had a different relationship with you was just because um, I knew a lot of CHRY DJs. I knew our mutual friend Ken Sum, I think, even at that point from like video stores. And, and you know, so so I think it was just like a little less intimidating. And I, and I was never, as far as I recall, like in the like Danko Jones, like being mean to about Danko Jones club except everyone i knew lots of people who were and i was in bands that were but you know yeah but publicly dissed us yeah. but that's okay i mean yeah i mean i got mad at you yeah our whole history together is me getting mad at you <laughs> for people i know for, for yeah but you poking at me and then i get mad and then you know and then, then it goes all it's like a merry-go-round yes it is great laughing in his album but but um, but, but uh, Damien subpar our, replacements our, album. Our starting point was so easy to remember because it was so memorable, such a memorable starting point. Well, as I tell, but that that's your starting point, like the festival in Europe, right? Yeah, we had met we had met uh, twice before uh, at record stores, um, but I was just oh, like that's a, right. a kid at the record store type vibe, and then. Uh, but I'd seen you, like I'd been to your shows, and I knew you came out of punk rock because I know you'd played Nomi's birthday party, and that's the seven inch release party, right? Oh yeah, you were there. No, I, I wasn't at the seven inch release party. I was at a show, like another basement show or something. Maybe it was at the that party. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, well, I was in no. and out of that scene. I, you know, I was. Uh, oh, well, that because yeah, then you guys just... took off, and you guys were like the 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 band you know like and there's like uh you know so it was then then there was like a mystique like seeing you guys play live and all this kind of stuff so uh it was it, it, you know like it, it was definitely you know uh a thing that i you know was was intimidated by as like a kid 100 percent, hmm. you know but i didn't react yeah. a bit negatively to it i kind of was like oh this guy's cool 
you know? Right. Uh, like a lot of people did. And, and I guess when going back to Robin, mm -hmm. I guess I just read it wrong and he read me wrong and I read him wrong. And, and here we are, you know, talking about it and he probably doesn't even care or think about me. And I don't really, I don't wake up every day thinking about Robin, but, but, mm -hmm. but it, it's just, you know, when I did see him like three, four years ago across the, across the room or whatever, um, you know, brought back memories and I'm pretty sure I can bet a hundred bucks. He would be cool with me Oh yeah. while I had to get the fucking thing out of my ass to like fucking be cool with him. So yeah. I'm the guy who needs to, 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 you know, figure it out. But that's the thing. He's like through it. Right. Like, cause he kind of like yeah. stepped away from music. Like I, last time I saw him, we talked and he's like, Oh yeah. Like I'm like, Oh, you ever want to do a band again? And something he's like, no, nah, not really. Like he's like, on the other side of stuff, right? Like, yeah, right, like I get right. my kicks literally kicking. No, now now he does. He's a huge social media guy with his fight breakdowns and, and yeah. Stuff well, that's like what that. I said. I mean, like it's just like the MMA stuff. Yeah. Know? No, he and he's he definitely, you know, as we talked about before, like at any time he could have like spin kicked all our heads off. You know, like uh, his hands are probably registered weapons. <laughs> For more beef talk and other hilarious chatter involving Danko Jones and Nick Flanagan, head over to part three and also some other amazing guests. See you over there.